Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ventura, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. In today's episode, we'll hear some clips from our recent mid-year conference. As we teach it, there are four vital components to consider when constructing the environments or transactions that do some heavy lifting for us. These elements are ideas, narratives, objects, and standards. Some transactional behavior archetypes are better suited to provide one of these elements than others. The conference included over 40 subject matter experts who addressed how they amplify their influence in transactions. Today we're going to hear about the role of the producer and the processes, practices, objects, and consistency required in any transaction. Why are human beings so object-oriented? We build houses, buy stuff, and make things. While other animals build nests or gather trinkets, we humans can imagine and build objects never found anywhere in nature. Why is that? What would happen if we stopped making things, making objects? Today we'll hear from some of our top producers within our ecology, and we invite you to listen to this episode from two different angles. You either are a producer or involved in exchanges with them. As you listen, what can you learn about yourself? What can you learn about transacting with others? Here are some producer personality clips. A policeman's uniform, a a doctor's white coat, a business suit, a judge's gavel, a wedding ring, a baby's carriage, a cancer pin, a Monet painting are just a few objects that will carry immense weight and meaning. The sum of these objects could create a family, a town, a culture, or perhaps even a time period. Take a moment and consider flipping through TV channels. Stop at a channel and you see a Roman suit of armor you immediately know other objects that are associated with that time period. You know the area of the world that you're in and probably some idea of the concerns of the people at that time. All of this from a split second of information about objects. Objects are a pathway to action. Many of us use to-do lists and object to inform action. We create plans objects to get our study papers completed. We even use objects to inform us of other actions. Our environment, the aggregate of surrounding things and medium, is a world of things and objects. 
objects that we humans, as workers, have fabricated, produced, brought into existence to make our lives safer and more enjoyable. Without this artifice, we would cease to be. Simmel says that the ego would crumple up if it were not surrounded by external objects in which might find expression, its tendencies, its energy, and its peculiarities. Objects offer people a permanence, durability, objectiveness to our world. We are object oriented. Now, although each and every one of us, no matter what our personality and transactional behavior is, we're object oriented. However, it is the superpower of the producer to take those ideas and linguistic objective narratives and make them real and objective in the world. Producers live in the world of objectivity. As John told you, my name is Marnie Power and I am a faculty member for Influence Ecology. I lead the Priority and Practice Program, the Fundamentals of Transaction Program, and I'm currently training to lead the Mechanics and Practice Program. So producers, in the most general sense, we are talking about a personality that is interactional. They live in a kind of cause and effect world where things are what they are and they're not what they're not. And it's useful if you are a producer to recognize the whole world doesn't think like you do. Trust me, not everyone sees things as black and white as you do. Remember, producers are objective. Their worldview is about getting things done. They are all about doing. And the most effective producer you will ever have on a team is a producer who yields planning and strategy to the other personalities and brings the expertise to the doing. Why? Because producers know how to get things done. Now, since they do know how to get things done and they're really, really good at it, they do have a bit of a misguided notion or view, which is if you want it done right, do it yourself. That is a bit of a producer motto. Well, that view can get them into trouble from time to time in the form of being overcommitted or overwhelmed. However, generally speaking, producers actually don't mind because they will build processes to get it all done. Producers automate and streamline practices to get things done as efficiently as possible. Let's just look at the simple day-to-day -day activities that must be managed. I'm not even talking about the most complex transactions we're all involved in to satisfy our most ambitious aims. I'm talking about the foundational transactions, the daily labor, work, and action that we all must tend to. Things like reconciling your bank account, budgeting, grocery shopping, cleaning, running errands, cooking, getting the kids to school or band practice, whatever it might be. All the things that have to be taken care of daily. Producers are wired in such a way that they automate the whole thing. They see processes everywhere and they can streamline the process in such a way that eliminates waste and inefficiency. It is shocking 
or at least to me, all that a producer can hold and carry. The number of things a producer can get accomplished in one day is astounding. And they make it seem effortless. Now, I want to focus on their fitness or proficiency in terms of building environments to support transactions. Producer superpowers are in the areas of processes, practices, objects, and consistency. So I'm going to talk about each of those. First off, processes. Now, we've talked a little bit about processes, how producers tend to see everything as a process, how they can automate processes and bring repetition to a process to achieve particular results, which is, of course, critical. Repetitive habits and practices, or labor work and action, are required for the fulfillment of our aims. Producers are fit to grab the commitments made in a transaction and help to formulate the specific work and action in all of its forms, whether it be processes, procedures, habits, objects, or the objects that are required for repetition and consistency. Objects. We opened this whole talk earlier about how human beings are object related. I think most of us have heard Kirkland or John say, aim them toward an object. Now, some of you still might be wondering, what does that even mean? I'm not going to be answering that for you right now. However, I am going to leave you with something Kirkland said when he and I were talking about this concept and this notion of aiming people toward an object. So I leave you to ponder his words. And I love what he said. Kirkland said this speaking to me as if he were leading a part of this talk. He said, the breakthrough for some of you at this conference is that you understand you are banging your head against the wall trying to get people to understand something. Stop trying to get them to understand it and aim them at something. I love that. Words to consider. Now, the final superpower of producers is consistency. Producers value consistency. Keep in mind, it is their dominant need for happiness. For many producers, when something is automated such that it is, that it is consistent and reliable, it comes off of their list of things to manage. They don't have to put in the brain power or the labor which is involved when something is variable. I want you to consider the producer superpower of consistency is underrated or said another way, it is undervalued. We live in a fast moving world where news happens and it is broadcast all over the world within minutes. Things seemingly occur instantaneous and the current would have us demanding for instant results. The value of consistent applied activity to produce reliable outcomes often gets ignored or goes unnoticed. Every one of us has ambitious aims. You wouldn't be in this 3D auditorium if you didn't. In order to satisfy your aims, you need help and lots of it. Consider you also need powerful structures, processes, and objects to satisfy your aims. I am now aiming you toward producers. If you have not enlisted the help of a producer to help you build the structures, the objective environment necessary to satisfy your aims, 
then folks, you are missing the boat. My name is Pasam Fernandu, and I'm going to be talking about people-centered processes today. So, um, have you heard this statement before? People are our greatest asset. Um, I actually haven't been able to find out who actually said it first, but we hear it all the time. But have you, how often have you seen people make this statement, but not actually show it? So what can you do to show people that they are the greatest asset? What sort of processes would you build around them to show this? I'm a senior consultant in software engineering at a global professional services provider called Avanade. I create enterprise solutions using Microsoft technologies. I've been in the industry for 15 years, and in that time, I've worked with many different software projects, um, creating a variety of different types of products, and in a variety of different industries, including mining, oil and gas, transport, and health. So I've had the opportunity to work in many different types of teams in different environments. I was able to see how people interacted and worked and get an appreciation of the various approaches to software development, both the traditional and modern approaches. So I identify as a producer, so I'm action oriented. What I've learned is having a good people-centered process around me is will help me to just focus with getting on with my work without getting the distractions. Now, I mentioned earlier about Agile and how it has different methodology. Um, there's one specific uh, methodology that's called Scrum, and that's actually the most common methodology in the industry. Um, the latest statistics suggest that pure Scrum is used in about 58% of all the, of the projects. So I remember when I was doing my fundamentals of transactions and getting close to that, I also did a certification in my Scrum Master say, Scrum Master training, which is uh, which is um, uh, important certification for that. And what I realized is because all my knowledge was coming together at the right time, what I realized is that the Scrum Agile methodology very similar to a transaction cycle. So what I've done is I've mapped the transaction. Well, I've taken the events and ceremonies and the artifacts from process and put it into the transaction cycle. So I don't think the inventors of Scrum were studying transactional transaction cycles uh, when they were thinking about coming up with, with Scrum, but what they've effectively created was an implementation of the transaction cycle. And this is what makes Scrum so powerful. And this is probably why Scrum has been so widely adopted in the industry as well. Okay, so now for some pretty interesting tools. I think these are actually fantastic tools that I'm hoping that you can learn and hopefully take with you and implement in your processes. First is the Kanban board. Now it's a simple concept, but it has powerful results. So this actually didn't originate in software development. It originated in the 1940s in Toyota when they were trying to find bottlenecks and improve the processes in their manufacturing processes. Simple tool, as I mentioned, and all it is is it has some swim lanes or columns, as you see. Do in progress, and you're done. And you have your cards, uh, which are the colored uh, squares that you see. Cards uh, have the work item written on it. And what you do is you have your items in the 
to do initially. So you would initially, you would pick, go to the board, pick up the work item that you want to work on, put, it, put your name against it and put it in progress. Once you're done, put it to done. So your team members will do the same. So it has some powerful consequences. In Agile, in, in Scrum especially, we use a similar board like this. And everyday activities become the focal point of the, the Scrum board becomes the focal point of everyday activities. We have our meetings around the board. We manage our work around the board. We see breakdowns. We see bottlenecks. Someone has too many tasks in the to-do or the team has a lot of tasks in the to-do. We notice that there's something stopping them from completing it. So we see a bottleneck there. You also have the ability to see who's working on what, who doesn't have work, who's, uh, who doesn't have uh, much work in the pipeline yet. And this also creates visibility because it's not just the team that can see the board, the stakeholders can come in the business owners. So it creates accountability. So what does this create? All up, it creates a consequential environment for the team. Now, there's another tool that I'd like to introduce you to, which is part of the fulfill stage, because you know, I'm a producer, that's where I, that's where I do, that's where I act. And it's about monitoring progress as you're going through your work. So it's in the fulfill part of the transaction cycle. This is a way to your daily activities. So the idea is that the team congregates around the Kanban board. So you can see how the Kanban board comes into this. And the, the aim is to talk about the agenda of each, um, the agenda is for every team member to talk about um, their status. And you have to do it under 15 minutes. You have to do it with a 15 minute time limit. And all you need to do is talk about what you did since the last had up, uh, what you're going to do, and if you have any blockers. Now, if you need to have bigger conversations, if there are blockers, what you don't want to do is have the conversation in the standup. The idea is that you agree to meet outside the standup and have those discussions afterwards or create another time for that. That way, you're not going to hold the entire team up to get work. Uh, that will stop them from doing their work. Now, why is it called a stand-up? Um, I think it's kind of obvious because when you're standing up, it's, it's considering your biology and people don't like to stand up for meetings in general. It forces them to be quick and be mindful of that. And as such, it creates a low-cost transaction. Other interesting uh, ceremony that we have in the Scrum methodology is the retrospective. Event that happens end of the sprint or the iteration, so the end of that cycle. And I, I initially, I, earlier I talked about the feedback that you get from the customers, and that also happens at the end of the sprint, but that's the review of the product, review and feedback of the product. The retrospective, in contrast, is actually a review and feedback of the process, how well it went during that transaction cycle, th that during that iteration. What worked well? What didn't work well? Where can you improve? And as a result, you will create some action items that, we, that will be fed back into, the into future iterations, into future transaction cycles. 
Now, the process should be developed and refined over time to meet your needs, and it needs to be maintained similar to an environment. Certainly, it's no different with people-centered processes. So remember, if you have a people-centered process, to also get regular feedback from the people taking part in the process. Well, hi everyone, I'm Simon Chesney and I'll be talking about people-centered process. I identify as a producer personality, although I often say I'm producer with inventor rising. And I should uh, add as well, and this comes from a conversation I had with Marnie when I was preparing for this talk, uh, that I'm one of those producers, I'd say like Dr. Koosh Cooper, uh, who describes herself as uh, an executive pr producer. I have a concern for the work in action, uh, but I don't have to be the one doing the work. I need to know it'll get done, um, but I may be facilitating the activities of fulfillment rather than doing the work personally myself. I'd like you to, to, to look at and ask yourself, are your processes, that is the processes you use, processes you create, or perhaps the processes you manage or inflict on others, do those processes delineate the, the rules of play, the rules of the game? Do they provide helpful guardrails um, that help remove diluting elements and reduce distraction? And do they free you and the people with whom you collaborate to do your absolute best work every day? Or maybe your processes pin you down to narrow ways of dealing with the situations that you face. Perhaps you're dealing with, you could say, calcified expressions of how business was done in the past. Maybe your, your processes are bureaucratic overhead in need of radical reinvention. So here's another assertion. A lot of the processes that are employed in enterprises around the world today have their foundation in a mechanical or mechanistic view of the world. They've evolved from the management practices associated with managing industrial age factories and later manufacturing production lines. In this mechanistic paradigm, machine is the metaphor for the system and the parts of the system are like cogs in the machine. Now, in a factory model where machines can perform the actions and steps required, we'll use machines. And where machines are too expensive or not yet available, we tend to use the most flexible machines of all, human workers. And we manage both the machines and our human resources in ways intended to extract the greatest efficiency from them. And this mechanistic paradigm it, um, evolved into the style of thinking used to define business and management processes in the professional workplace as well. An approach from this perspective, process definitions tend to be rigid and inflexible, and management processes tend to reflect a hierarchical agency model. And I should say what I mean by agency model. If I'm the manager or the boss, people reporting to me are my agents and I'm, I might direct their work and action in specific ways to expand my capability. Um, so as the smartest person in the room, I'm directing the action and that they're my agents. So a manager might be monitoring performance to ensure that the process is followed or assigning and directing the work. And we'd probably characterize 
this behavioral style as interactional, um, regarding others as objects to be manipulated rather than transactional. And if, like me, you've had the experience of being micromanaged at any point in your career, you'll know what that feels like. And generally, it's not an, an enjoyable experience. So let's take a look at this, this the assertion around a better way to do this, you know, as reflected in, in the agile movement, at least for professional workers or professional knowledge workers. Knowledge workers is a, a term that was coined by Peter Drucker in the late 1950s. And it's essentially someone who knows more about the work they're doing than their boss does. Uh, an agile approach takes the, the manager directing the work part out of the picture in favor of self-directed and self-managed work groups or teams. The teams in this model pull their work. That is, they decide what work they're going to take on next. They pull their work from a list of items that have been sequenced in order to deliver the greatest possible value with the least delay. And having selected the work that they want to take on, they figure out together how they're going to tackle the work together. And this creates an environment in which the members of the team become accountable to one another for delivering the work. Now, Agile Scrum, which is a particular implementation of the Agile principles from the Agile Manifesto, Agile Scrum provides specialized roles and well-defined meeting agendas. And we call these meetings Agile Ceremonies. And these Agile Ceremonies uh, are designed to help teams work through each of the things they need to tackle together. Uh, members of work groups or teams typically evolve. They raise their fitness over time um, from being part of a group, but taking their own work away to, to work independently from one another. Um, they evolve from that to figuring out how to cooperate with one another to get the work done. And then further, they raise their fitness to the point where they have high levels of, of collaboration within the team. And it turns out that skilled professionals derive a lot of satisfaction from being able to determine what work they're going to do, how they're going to do it, and when they're going to do it. And that the motivation that flows from this level of self-determination is also associated with improved results. So I suppose I should articulate that as an assertion, um, that higher levels of motivation lead to better results in professional workplaces. But when it comes to being self-directed and self-managed as a team, it turns out that transactional competence is like a superpower. When team members have a sense of the cost that they can be to one another, um, as well as the value that they bring, the asset that they bring, the transactions of which they're a part can really begin to accelerate. And we've seen that by training people in transactional competence for cross-functional teams or TCX um, in Western Digital, where I work. humans, we are experts at unconsciously creating practices and habits. But unfortunately, they are often practices and habits that don't give us the results which fulfill on our aims. Habits form culture and habits build reputation. The culture and the reputation you are building because of your habits around meetings in all areas of your life is what I want to focus on today. So my name is, as most of you know, Anna Stover, and I identify as a producer. 
I love to create habits with people leaders to solve their breakdowns in communication so they get to achieve their strategies, build sustainable relationships. But more importantly, I really hate seeing people stressed by their habits. I have over 30 years experience working in education and training. And I have worked with children with learning difficulties, which might surprise some of you, all the way through to CEOs, local government representatives and state politicians, all to help them establish powerful habits. Every day in my work, I use the most basic and fundamental special education training, and that is direct instruction. So I'm the person who steps up to work with you after the strategy has been developed, after the change management consultant or the leadership training course you've been to. And I work hand in hand with leaders who are faced with how on earth we actually do all of this. I teach the how and I set up the systems which build the habits. So I'm going to let you in on some secrets. So achieving your strategy and the result you want relies on consistency, habits, the habits of work and action, the habits of structures to get things done. This is the superpower of a producer. As you know, habits are shortcuts. So you don't have to think about them. You don't have to stress about them. Habits also, and unfortunately, are created by deliberate practice. And what I want to share with you today about meetings will fit this definition if you choose to take it on. So these habits of meetings are mentally challenging. You will get qualified and instant feedback. You will have to repeat over and over. You will improve if you keep at it. The routines and the habits become the culture, the automatic way we work around here. And humans, humans are creatures of habit. So you might as well make them useful. Now, before you go, oh, my God, meetings, I really need to just speak a little bit about meetings. So meetings are simple habits. And I want you to consider that as human beings, we have some pretty bad habits around meetings. In influence ecology, we have learned a lot about how to behave around meetings and how to be clear in meetings. But really, there is so much more to meetings in organisations than we think. I'm now going to challenge these habits and show you that you can and you must for the sake of your results, your reputation and your aims. You must really have a look at some positive habits around meetings. And I want to show you how, because really, you already know in some cases that there are meetings that are missing or not working as well as they, sh they should. And in some cases, you've actually not taken the action and you naively hope that it doesn't really matter. As a producer personality, the lack of objects, in this case, effective meetings to support repetitive and consistent action over time was blaringly obvious. So I'm going to introduce you to each one of three simple meetings. So firstly, I'll run through them very simply and then producer style, I will come back and go into a little bit more detail about each one. So the first meeting we put into place in this organisation was what I call the strategy meeting. So this is the meeting that is high level. So this is where the senior leaders in the organisation 
are talking to everybody about what's going on at that higher strategy level. They're held less frequently. So they might be quarterly, they might be half yearly, or if you're doing strategy meetings down in a team level or a functional level, they might be monthly. I'm going to come back and talk a little bit more about that. The next meeting is what I call the tactical meeting. So many of you might be familiar with tactical meetings as being operational meetings. These are the meetings that you are looking at your satisfaction metrics. They could be daily, they could be weekly, but they're very short term. And as you can see from the photo that I've deliberately chosen, not a lot of people, and it's a stand-up meeting because it's short. So the managers or the leaders who are responsible for the tactical implementation of the strategy are the ones who would be in that meeting. And then the third meeting is the one-on-one. -on -one. You might know it as a supervision meeting. Um, it's a meeting between the direct supervisor and each of their employees, one-on-one, -on -one, privately and regularly. So I'll come back in a little bit more detail now to each it into an object. But one of the things to think about firstly is systemizing the meetings. So you all have done this, I guarantee. You have put a recurring meeting or a recurring appointment in your diary. When you do that, bringing it into existence, you're bringing it into reality. And then if you invite other people, you are using consistent commitment and consistency because you're telling everybody we're having a meeting and then you damn well better show up and have it. So you really start to create that habit by forcing it into your diary. And as we've heard Kirkland say, show me your schedule and I'll show you your commitments. So often when I'm talking to people and they raise a concern about an area of life, I will say to them, is it in your diary? Now, mostly it's not. That's the first thing to think about. Where do you need to start putting these important meetings in your diary? And secondly, who are you going to give the ownership to? Some of the meetings we're talking about you own, obviously. But in an organisation, who owns that tactical meeting? And more importantly, who owns those one-on-ones? And I would say who owns those one-on-ones is the person who is coming to the manager. So when you can get everybody to see the power of these meetings and they take ownership, they will rock up regardless of whether you're there or not. So this is a breakdown of, of how I think it might work. But when you think about the purpose of a meeting, like what do you want to get out of this conversation? What do you want to have at the end of it? Then that brings you to the content. No different to a transaction cycle. What are the different things we have to work through around this meeting? Once you get clear on that, then your agenda kind of falls out. And I don't know how to describe that in any other way than in a producer's brain, the agenda just appears like magic. And then out of that, it becomes really obvious who should own that meeting so who is the person that should make sure the meeting happens who is the person that should perhaps put the recurring appointments in and who should make sure that they've got the right people in the room as the leader wanting to embed this in an organization or in your own life 
you actually have to turn up and you have to model. It does not work, as you can imagine, to book the meetings for everybody else and then not turn up because you're building a habit. So there, this is where this deliberate practice comes in. You have to keep turning up. Like the managing director who wasn't there on a Monday and they didn't turn up, he, we still had to keep pushing to get that to become a habit. And then lastly, and this is where our knowledge of personalities really comes into play, make sure everybody's happy. So make sure the inventors get a chance to share their good ideas. Make sure the performers get a chance to relationship and make sure that they create a really good narrative for the meeting. In fact, you don't even have to call these meetings. If you work with a performer, you can come up with a way better name than meeting because as minute, the minute you say meeting, everyone goes, oh, my God. So you can change the name. But the, make sure the performers are happy. The producers, of course, will be very happy if you include them in the organisation of the meetings. There is nothing worse than inviting a producer to the meeting. They don't know what it's about. They walk in the door and I can tell you what they will see is disorganisation and they won't be very helpful. So include them in the beginning. I need your help. I need to set some meetings up. What do you reckon you could do to help me with this? And they will generally, when they understand what you're trying to do, they will gladly help. And then lastly, make sure the judges have got something to assess. And if you don't have judges in your meeting, it's really, really hard to assess and then reinvent what you need to do for the next period. So that's my tip about these meetings is just make sure you have people in there and they are being, um, they are having their dominant need for happiness met and that includes you. You won't keep going to these meetings if they don't work for you. For those of you that I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Patricia DeBow. I'm a brand and marketing strategist that has worked in the tech space for the last dozen years or so, mostly for software startups. But I'm not here to talk about marketing today, but rather something that has emerged from and as a result of my career. I've been studying with Influence Ecology for about three and a half years, and now looking back, I recognize that it was the catalyst to a seismic shift in my life. So I am really honored to share a subject with you that is dear to my heart and something I truly believe can elevate not only individual lives and our satisfaction in the workplace, but just might even have broader significance within society. I will be sharing a bit about my ongoing journey with mental health. First, let's level set on a couple of definitions. Mental health is defined as a person's condition with regard to their psychological and emotional well-being. And well-being is broadly the state of being comfortable, happy, healthy. One quick disclaimer, I'm not a medical professional. What I'm here to offer today is my personal journey and the learnings I've taken away from it that I hope will simply inspire you to create your own deliberate practice, to seek out the qualified resources you may need to both support and challenge you. And when I talk about mental health, I'm speaking of what can be influenced by our own actions and mindset. I'm not talking about mental illness in the medical sense. Career is defined by things like how we are known for the help and value we offer, 
our public identity, ability, and capacity to help, our reputation of virtues, personal characteristics, and consistently delivering valuable help. In essence, career is our marketplace identity. So why are these two domains important in context to each other? On average, we spend a third or more of our lives within our career. But my experience has been that many of us go into and about our careers not understanding the full gravity of our mental health. Absolutely no one gets out of childhood or life for that matter without baggage. We carry our family of origin dysfunction, traumas, systems of belief, past failures, among many other things with us everywhere that we go. And often they become unconscious ways of being that do not serve us and often harm us and others. We then vastly underestimate the role that our psychological and emotional well-being plays every day as we navigate and build our career identities. We disconnect the interactions, the relationships, the challenges we have in the workplace from the rest of our lives or assume that we can simply compartmentalize our feelings from our work. We do not all work into, walk into our workplaces and instantly become emotionless robots. We are still biological creatures. So it's critical to consider these domains holistically and understand the effects on each other. Along with transactional philosophy, Brene Brown has helped transform my understanding of this connection. In case you're not familiar with Brene Brown, she's a PhD, a licensed master social worker. She's a researcher, professor, lecturer, and five-time New York Best Time selling author. She holds an endowed chair at the University of Houston's Graduate College of Social Work. She's a visiting professor in management at McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. So in short, <laughs> she knows her shit. She has an amazing concept around what she calls armor. Brown defines armor as the thinking, emotions, and behaviors we use to self-protect when we experience uncertainty, fear, and vulnerability. And here are just a few examples of what armor looks like. Things like perfectionism, celebrating exhaustion, creating unhealthy false dichotomies, fear of failure, using positive, here's one of my own personal ones, using positivity as armor. The result of this armor is that we may unknowingly be high cost or we may not bring as much value to our career as we otherwise could. These things, this armor, take purposeful, deliberate work to overcome. And no one is a free pass, no one. There's a saying I reference often, what happened to you is not your fault, but healing from it is your responsibility. No matter what you experience in your life, you have to do the work to heal and grow because it is impossible for someone else to do this work for you. We can only change ourselves. We can influence others. Yes, that's why we're all here. That's why this type of work is so important. It's critical to understand how our mental fitness affects others. We owe it to each other and to our careers to dig deeper than we do today. Knowing that the condition of our mental health can either be an asset or a liability within career, the types of questions to start asking ourselves are, what identity do I want to create? Is my current psychological and emotional well-being helping me or standing in the way? 
And what can I do about it? How do I cultivate the valuable asset that is my mental health? Mental health is not a final destination that you reach someday or a one and done type of activity. It's a lifelong journey that requires daily habits and practices developed over time. Producers are great at consistency and work in action. Some of the tools that you'll need to build those daily habits and practices. I'd like to highlight for you today the deliberate practice approach I took to my own mental health and the positive impact it's had on my career. And while I didn't realize it at the time, my journey through therapy and how I was applying my studies of influence ecology and other subject matter experts like Renee Brown was actually retraining my brain practice. Deliberate practice is characterized as embodying some ability, expertise, or knowledge, and having access to it available in the moment it is required. To also correlate that ability, expertise, or knowledge in service of the invention of new abilities, expertise, or knowledge. And it's meant to close the distance between your current state and that which is required to satisfy your most important aims. There are five elements of deliberate practice. It's designed specifically to improve performance. It's repeated a lot. Feedback is continuously available. It's highly demanding mentally, and it's not much fun. John asked me to talk about the, the value of consistency. Um, and sort of when he said that, um, I heard, I heard him say, well, the cost of variability. In fact, I even thought that the talk was called the cost of variability um, in the program because that's how I view, um, I view life, right? I view life as um, things that are consistent and things that vary, right? And they require two different kinds, you know, like two different kinds of approaches. Implematics, um, it was the, the offer that was born and raised in MAP uh, when I realized that my regular day job wasn't going to meet my aims. Um, and so I thought about, okay, so what am I going to do? Like, what, what, what's, what am I best fit for? And implementation um, sounded like something a producer absolutely should embark on. Uh, so that's what happened. Uh, and we created uh, this organization called Implematics. And what we do is we bring agility to human services. Um, the way I say it in my field is we bring project management to social workers. The, the transaction cycle according to an executive producer. And I'll get into so why I call myself an executive producer um, in, in the next slide. But essentially, here's, here's how it is for us. We somebody hands us something to do, right? To plan and then to do. And we, and there's a list, there's a list that I check off. Okay, do we have resources that are adequate? And do I have standards to work with? Okay, good. Is the framework sound, right? Like strategically, is this get a, gonna get us to the aim the, the inventor wants? Are people excited about it? Or am I gonna have really, really, really grumpy stakeholders? Um, and then is the contract actually signed and deadlines established? 
right? So if those things are not done, I am going to stop the transaction and have folks get those things in place. It's never fun to have that conversation uh, with folks uh, because you know we're we all want to get to the doing. Uh, actually, most of my clients want to get to the doing. Do we really need to plan and design? Um, can we just sort of build the plane while we're flying it? And I don't do build planes while we're flying them. Um, I don't know about you, uh, and I tell this to my clients, I have never bought a ticket to a plane that wasn't built. And particularly in our field where we deal with vulnerable children and families, um, I think that's unethical to actually put vulnerable children and families on planes that aren't built. So let's say we've got all those things in place now and um, I'm ready to plan and do the work. So what that looks like is I've checked that the plan is sound and now I am going to implement the processes that the plan mandated. You actually don't implement a plan. You don't implement a policy. Those are pieces of paper, like letters on paper, electrons on a screen. You read them. What you implement are the processes that are mandated by the plan or the, um, uh, the policy. So what we'll do is then we'll start to optimize the processes. We'll start to make them repeatable and then we'll automate them so they run themselves. And we'll start to get to do this faster and faster and faster. We call that being productive, right? The processes are being productive. And that hopefully that, that efficiency will lead to more resources um, and we can go around and around and around. Uh, so that's the transaction cycle according to me. So why do I say executive producer? Well, um, I can spot a faulty framework or a pathway and I can communicate what's wrong with it. Um, and I, I'm kind of okay with the reactions, particularly from inventors, right? Because they, it occurs for them, like you called their baby ugly. Uh, we haven't, the baby is great, is the baby's not gonna live. Uh, so I can, can communicate exactly what is wrong with an inventor in the smart way that they thought about it. And so earn their respect life. I come from production, not from head down producing, right? It, so there's, a, there's, there's where you can get on the balcony, Ron Heifetz calls it, and, and, look, and look at the, the assembly line and figure out um, where your inefficiencies are in the production and you can optimize and optimize and optimize production and then i can lead um and there's a dis there's a distinction i make between leading and managing uh management is needed when you have a plan and you just need to manage it competently to to to, to the end like to execution uh when there is no when the plan's not gonna work and you don't know what to do next, that's when leadership is required. Um, and I can lead. I can actually create a new, a new approach, a new future for a team without to get to the same aim by changing the pathway midstream right? and communicating that. So that's what I mean by executive producer when I say executive. So let's talk about variability. Consider that all of the activity of life 
can be viewed as a network of processes, or at least most of it. Um, and with regard to those processes, when they are consistent and automated, you conserve resources in deploying that process. Variability and customization consumes resources. And I think this law um, applies to all value disciplines. So I've had the folks sort of make the argument that, well, but customer intimate is by nature variable. Well, your client facing processes may need to be variable and customized to the, to the um, client, but there are processes, support processes like training and IT and administrative processes like payroll you don't need variability there, even if you're a customer intimate offer, um, because it's just it's going to kill your bottom line. Um, so the you don't need variability all over the place. You just need it if you're customer intimate in what's client facing. And I'm excited to be here with um, all the work we've done with Influence Ecology. I, uh, my work, many of you know, is in the area of legacy. I, I capture stories in families and I guide people in engaging in legacy questions. I've been speaking and writing about legacy and I've been enthused about expanding my view of legacy and, and applying aspects of transactional philosophy and process philosophy to the view of how we can look at ourselves, our lives as a whole and being an aspect of the whole in the world and the cosmos during our lifetime and the impact of our life beyond our lifetime. I'm also really excited to be involved in the board for the Institute of Transactional Philosophy. And I invite all of you to come visit us over in Tower 2 of the virtual campus and uh, take a look around. We've got our board has offices over there and we have an opportunity to meet with you there at any time. So today I'm going to be talking about four main points about the power of objects and um, it's really important to realize that objects produce powerful effects to reach your aims. Uh, Marty touched on the idea that, you know, objects, we take them for granted and we become indifferent to them. And I think we do the same thing about realizing we don't realize the power they have to help us in catapulting what we're out to accomplish and the results we want to achieve to live a satisfied life. The other important thing about objects is you only need one object. And in one object to, can direct and influence all actions. You don't need three or five, you really just need one. Objects also create a very clear pathway to your aims and they, and they produce a call to action. Having um, the right objects matters and a clear pathway, but once you get going, um, you can really use that pathway to catapult what your results are. And then most importantly, they direct the specific people to take specific actions. They take, they direct yourself to take specific actions as well as the teams and the people that you aim objects at. I think it's, it's important to start with what is an object and Marnie touched on it a little bit in terms of the realm of things that are objects, but obviously objects are a thing. So something that you can see, touch and feel, or it can be subject matter like mathematics or poverty or marriage. A marriage is, is a subject and it is an object. It's constructed and ordered in settled form, meaning that it exists and was constructed with the agreement of a culture or a group of people and toward which you can direct people's actions. 
So whether the object is algebra or marriage, the kid's playground, a hammer or a deck of cards, they each direct specific human activity. The reality is that we, we know that reaching our aims requires specific actions. So the important aspect to remember about objects is that they direct people to take specific actions. And many you don't even think about. When I thought about this morning, you know, I don't have to think about what I do with a toothbrush. I just pick it up, I put the toothpaste on, and the next thing you know, it's in my mouth. So a lot of the way we relate to objects, we become very indifferent and really um, uh, underappreciate the value that they provide for us regularly. So now you might be asking, well, why, did, why does one object matter? Um, and, and really the crux of this is that we need to be clear what will have us be satisfied? How are, how are we gonna know when we get there in terms of being satisfied? How are you gonna know um, what that is? Um, did you meet your budget or not? Did you go on a date or not? Did you accomplish the, the goal at the end of the month? We need that target. And, we, and it also is what helps us experience satisfaction. I think we rob ourselves sometimes of not even experiencing satisfaction because we're just aiming toward the next thing. And then, you know, we also, to be satisfied, most of us would prefer to reach our goals in the most direct way possible with the least amount of labor and overwhelm. And then objects create the pathway. It, it call, it's a trigger to a call to action. Without an object, you can't manage your actions towards your aims. On the other hand, having too many objects can be a distraction or result in a lack of focus. Complexity, as we know, can be easily built, but then overwhelm is often right around the corner. So we spend time in our programs and in this ecology looking at uh, really what's in, what are the conditions and life situations that matter to us most. And while this is a lot of detail on this slide, it's meant to just give you some a few examples of what objects might be in each of these conditions of life. There's obviously many to select from, but I'm just going to highlight a few. So if we look at relationships, for example, an engagement ring, whether you're the one that's going to make the proposal or the one who's just accepted the ring, the actions that are directed toward your life and your actions are very specific after you after that engagement ring is part of the plan. Reunions, class reunions, family reunions, that's an object you can aim people toward. Smiles and compliments, these are things you can measure and look for whether you're whether you're going to be the one to generate the smile or you're going to cause a smile over there. Those are things that can actually impact a relationship. Compliments, fun moments and romance. All examples of objects. And then, of course, if we go down to legacy, which is the realm that I deal with. Stories, heirlooms, traditions, history, uh, generosity. Le lessons learned. All of these are ways uh, that people can use objects and that I use objects in the area of legacy. Objects are also very important to transactions. You can use objects to direct specific actions for the narratives and the moves and phases of the transaction. If you're ever stuck, we know to go back one step and look at what was where the meeting of the minds and where things were effective. But you also may take a look and say, what object are you aiming people for in this phase of the transaction so that you can get the desired result to move the transaction forward.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to tell you that cash is dead. I know this because I saw an article on the internet. In fact, if you were to run a Google News search at the end of this presentation for the term cashless society, you'd see dozens of media articles advising you that physical cash is dead. International publications, glossy magazines, community papers and trade journals, the coverage is comprehensive. Now, you'll probably agree that this pro proposition is beyond true. Yet, I must tell you, despite our shared experience, this conclusion is patently incorrect. Those of you that don't know me, my name is Andrew Crellin. I live in Perth, Western Australia, and I am a professional numismatist. That means I've studied, bought and sold rare coins, currency and metals for close to 25 years. I've written two books on Australian numismatics. Coinage of Colonial Australia, which was published by the Powerhouse Museum, and Australia Sovereigns, which was published by the Perth Mint. Now, these books cover the role of coins in Australia's monetary and economic history. They outline not just lists and technical specifications of the coins covered, but they also provide stories of those coins in use, how our economy grew and prospered as they were adopted. And for the past 18 months, I've studied transactional competence and I identify with the producer personality type. Now, why might we want to consider cash as a physical object in our environment rather than as an object we work towards? By creating, finding and keeping at hand useful objects, we improve our ability to succeed. Now, the most cogent example I can come up with in the value of thinking this way is in the French phrase, phrase mise en place, which I understand translates as everything in its place. Now, this idea, which is all about objects in environment, is so powerful, it's almost a philosophy in the culinary world. A professional kitchen is designed with efficiency in mind, mixing bowls, tools and equipment are cleaned and set out in an organized way. Ingredients are prepared before cooking begins. Now, in his celebrated book, Kitchen Confidential, the much-loved Jeff Anthony Bourdain said, the universe is in order when your station is set up the way you like it. You know where to find everything with your eyes closed. Everything you need during the course of the shift is at the ready, at arm's reach. Now, the idea that a chef must pay attention to their knees, as it's colloqu colloquially known, say that three times, was drummed into Bourdain from his first day in the kitchen. He saw the value in proactively setting up before taking action time and again. Bourdain was and is celebrated for his understanding of the reality of life in a professional kitchen. And this concept of mise en place, fundamental to that reality. Let us get out of the kitchen and back to money. Money that is an object that has been described as being the perfect tool. Perfect because it can be used to buy any number of other tools. Now we know money in physical form as cash, coins and currency notes. So the question for us today is, is physical cash still a useful object of exchange or is it being replaced by other forms of money? 
Have we humans reached a point where we no longer need to exchange tangible objects of value? Is it no longer necessary for us to have direct access to objects of value? The International Journal of Central Banking, which if you've enjoyed reading uh, Simmel's uh, book on money, then this will be a delight for you to, uh, this publication will be a delight for you to read. International Journal of Central Banking last month contained a paper titled Surprising Recovery of Currency Usage. Now, the introduction to that paper plainly states that despite the advent of the cashless society, cash usage has increased quite sharply in recent years in most countries. Now, you'll notice that I've, um, I've cut out sections of that uh, quote, not to make it suit the narrative that I'm presenting, but to just make it a point really simple that cash usage, cash usage has increased quite sharply in recent years. And Sweden is the only exception. How can we be living in a cashless society but still be using more cash? It's incredible. Now I'd submit the reason for this is that more cash being used as a store of value than is being replaced by cashless payments, much more. Now we can have our opinions about the merits of that choice. But the reality is we humans are hardwired to value objects in exchange. So here's another example, Australia in March. And we're not talking Russia in 1734. We're not talking Peru in, I don't know, 1800 AD. We're talking Australia in March, 2020. A Reserve Bank report in April stated that over-the-counter withdrawals of cash from banks were elevated over the second half of March. This included a small number of customers making very large withdrawals, in some cases into the millions of dollars. Now let's set aside our opinion of the wisdom in withdrawing millions of dollars in cash and instead accept that for those people, it was absolutely the right thing for them to do at that time. That in a cashless society, somebody felt it was important to withdraw millions of dollars in cash. We have reasons to be pleased, see those signs that we're hardwired to revert to physical objects in exchange. I'll leave you with one final example of the value of objects in exchange, and this time during a true crisis. And this example took place not far from Perth and not so long ago. Aceh province in northwest Indonesia was ground zero for the third largest earthquake in recorded history, and it struck on December 26, 2004. The resulting tsunami killed 90% of the local population. Every single business, every single building, but one was destroyed, and you can see that uh, in the photograph there. It's the mosque. Now, the, this photograph uh, cannot convey the horror of that. Uh, tsunami and just the devastation that it wreaked. Now, we could say that those people had everything taken from them, but that actually isn't the case. Archanese, which is the name for uh, the local populace in that part of Indonesia, have long trusted gold as a store of value. Now, here we have a photograph. We have an example of that tangible portable wealth. This photo shows a gold bangle being offered by a jeweller in Arche right now. So this has been taken from their uh, Facebook page, HM Ali Gold. 
Archonese who were wearing gold jewellery at the time the tsunami was struck were able to sell it to local merchants. Now that in turn provided them with the ultimate tool, cash, quickly and without friction. Now that cash paid for building materials and capital goods. So businesses started again. Now this organic process, in fact, happened long before international financial aid arrived in Arche. Now those locals who had uh, gold uh, jewelry were not only self-sufficient, they helped those around them as well. Now, I'd, I like to think that the Archonese show us that ideas, plans and relationships partnered with the right objects allow us to thrive in the face of incredible adversity. Humans will always be object oriented and I firmly believe that. By each of us having the right objects at hand for our situation, we give ourselves the best chance at success. Many special thanks to all of the subject matter experts who spoke at the recent mid-year. It was enlightening to hear from some of the best and brightest minds in our ecology. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with them and all the speakers mentioned in this podcast. The Influence Ecology podcast is produced by Influence Ecology LLC in Ventura, California. This episode was produced by Tyson Crandall and me, John Patterson. You can find a transcript for this and other episodes at InfluenceEcology.com. This episode is made possible through the assistance of the Influence Ecology faculty, staff, mentors, and students around the world. Co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and our colleagues comprise an international collective of professionals who are active in the development of the philosophy of transactionalism and the discipline of transactional competence. Kirkland is considered a leading philosopher and authority in the field and has authored more than 500 papers on the subject, study, and discipline. The podcast theme is by Chris Standry, entitled Fast Train to Everywhere. You can subscribe to the Influence Ecology podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at influenceecology.com. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know. Thank you.